Hey, welcome to Awaken Church. Um, it was a, a, an awesome day for me yesterday. Uh, not only was I in Greek class for eight hours, which was awesome, but my wife and I had a, a little party at our house, and we found out the gender of our third child. Um, and so we're excited. It's a boy. So it's very exciting. Um, so that's awesome. We kind of wanted to have a third, hoping for a girl. Um, but the Lord uh, has blessed us with a son, and so we are delighted, and we praise him for that. And so we're just excited about that. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, or if you want to pull up, um, you know, Scripture, the Word of God in the electronic format on your phone, that's okay. But if you're on Facebook, um, so go ahead and turn to Luke 24, Luke 24. And this will be our text for this morning. And this text will be wrapping up our series that we've done called Peacemakers. There's been a lot of reasons uh, why we've done this series as, as your pastors. Because one of them is we just look at the world and what peace is there? Another reason is we, and Frank did a phenomenal job last week, unpacking the Easter story through the vision and the eyes of Thomas. But there's not a whole lot of peace in our lives as well. And so we're in this desperate quest and desperate search for peace. We wanted to bring to you guys, how do we have peace in this world? And then also address something that I know is in every single one of your lives, because it's in my life, and that's conflict. How do we have peace in the midst of conflict, especially with the ones that we love? So this is why we've been... In this series, this is why we launched it, and this will be wrapping it up today. And so our goal, again, if you'll remember, is we want to become the people of God who breathe grace into conflict. We do this by knowing ourselves, by knowing others, and knowing Christ. And so we looked, week one, we looked at where does conflict start? And we looked at its missed expectations, but it goes a little bit deeper than missed expectations. Those expectations center in us. Conflict starts within us. And we talked about just the dark side that we have. We brought to light what James says about that. And then we looked at even the dark side of personalities, eight secret personalities, conflict personalities that we have, that we bring into conflicts. So whether we're a critic, whether we're a cynic, whether we're a martyr or a bully, a manipulator or a controller, a volcano or a passive-aggressive personality type, we bring those into conflict instead of bringing grace into conflict. Week two, again, my co-pastor Frank did a phenomenal job about talking about what, what happens when you're actually in the midst of that conflict. And surprisingly, the Bible gives you a step-by-step -step mechanical process on how to address that conflict. That's incredible. Believers, church, we... We don't have to be functional atheists when it comes to conflict. Jesus Christ has given us step by step how to address and solve it. Last week, we talked about how peace with God is the answer. It was the story of Thomas. And, and Thomas had to see Christ. Christ had to fill the vision of Thomas. When we talk about conflict... Jesus Christ has to fill our vision in order for us to manage, resolve conflict, in order for us to be peacemakers. 
So we're going to jump in. Luke 24. This is a phenomenal passage. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to share about it. So let's just pick up in verse 13, okay? We're just going to dive right in. Luke 24, verse 13. Now, on the same day, and we'll cover a few verses at a time, stop, unpack what those mean, and then we'll keep going. So again, now on that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. We'll pause right there. On the same day. So what is going on? On the same day as, as what? If we turn our eyes above the text in front of us, we find out that this is actually resurrection morning. What has happened is Luke has just recorded women coming to the tomb with a desire to fill the burial place of Christ, the desire to cover up the stench of death in their rabbi with expensive perfumes and spices. But he's not there. He is risen, and they have this vision of this heavenly angel. And they run back and tell the disciples. And the disciples, they can't make sense of what the women are saying. And so they run to the tomb. But what's really interesting, what I love about Luke, is Luke, when he, when he writes his, his passage, Luke has made perfect sense of what the women are saying. Well, how is that possible? Well, see, Luke gets to come to the story afterwards. He gets to interview the women afterwards. He gets to talk to them about what's going on. And what's amazing about this is that was not how people in the ancient world recorded history. You don't go talk to women eyewitnesses. You talk to the dudes. But Luke says, yeah, the guys were like totally confused and they just didn't know what the women were saying. How many of you guys have ever been in that position? Um, we were going on a mission trip um, to Charlotte a few weeks ago, a campus mission trip. I was in the car with four women driving to Charlotte for six hours. It was amazing. But I will tell you, I will tell you this. I'm an extrovert. I tend to think I'm, I'm a decently socially adept person, okay? I'm kind of smart. And, and I was overwhelmed at the flow of conversation it, was, it took, like, brain power to follow everything. And, you know, it was really awesome. And I loved it. It was so cool just sitting in the car with my sisters and hearing their passions and joys, what they want to do, with, you know, where they were going, all the stuff that was going on. It was so cool. And then I even took a picture, and I, I, almost, I almost put it up there. They, like, three of them fell asleep in the back seat. So I was, was going to put that picture up, but I didn't, wouldn't have been right, I felt like. Um... It is difficult to follow along, but Luke, in his, in his heart to lay out a clear and orderly account of the gospel so that we would believe, he interviews women, and he gets this clear and precise answer to where they were on the resurrection morning. We'll see this coming to play in a few verses. So... What's interesting also about this is that these disciples, they're traveling away from Jerusalem. They're going seven miles away to a little village called Emmaus. A seven-mile walk on dusty roads in that time probably would have taken four hours. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a drive from here to Miami if you're going with someone who's speeding. 
about four-hour drive. But why were they going to Emmaus? Because the Bible says that, that they were in conversation, but that even they were arguing. Well, again, this whole, this whole series on Peacemaker is us getting a 30,000-foot view of what's going on around Holy Week, what's going around with Jesus. And what has happened is that the tomb is empty, and there's already been some fabrications about why that is. People have already paid off the authorities to say that the disciples stole the body. So if you were a disciple or you were affiliated or you were associated with Jesus at the time, words getting around that you stole the body, where are you going to go? You're going to run. You're going to get out of Dodge. Because if they just killed your rabbi who professed to be the Messiah, if they just killed the person that you followed, they're probably going to come after you next and torture you so that you reveal where you put the body. They, they were running away from Jerusalem. Again, they were arguing too on the road. And this is what's interesting. The, the Greek is uh, suzeteo, which is really interesting because it just means to seek together. That's all it means, to seek together. But in the New Testament, when it's used in context, it, it's talking about arguing. And I think this is so fascinating. These people, they're leaving Jerusalem, these two travelers, and we'll get a little bit more into their identity. They're leaving Jerusalem, seeking together and arguing about everything that's going on. There's some kind of conflict taking place between these two people, and we do not know what it is yet. We don't know. But they're trying to figure it out together, or maybe, just maybe, they're actually opposed to one another. Maybe one of them is leaving Jerusalem against their will. And Jesus, he joins and he walks alongside them. How often do we not see Jesus walking aside us in our conflict? I mean, how often do we have conflict? I feel like I have it on a daily basis sometimes. But how often do we not see Jesus walking alongside us in our conflict? It says in the text, our eyes were prevented. Their eyes were prevented from seeing him. Again, for you guys, just to kind of lay out what conflict is, what we looked at a couple weeks ago, what is conflict? A big definition is just, it's a collision of, of forces. Two different ideas are competing for one another. Why does conflict happen? Opinions vary Emotions run strong, and the stakes are high. In the text, opinions vary, emotions are running high, and the stakes are high. And what our common response to conflict, it's twofold. We either run away, or we fight harder. Examine your own life. Is that not true? Do we not run away from conflict? Or do we try to dig our heels in and fight harder? In this passage, we see these two disciples and they are running away from conflict. They are fleeing Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 17 through 24. 
Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? They stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazarene, who is a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. A couple things here. Um, I love how Jesus comes alongside and he asks them a question. Hey, what, what, what's this conflict all about? What's going on? I'm sure some of you guys have asked that question. Whether it's a relational conflict that you're having, whether it's a, a, a marital conflict, whether it's a professional conflict. Hey, what's going on? What are the forces at play here? And, and this, is, this is what Cleopas says. He just stops. He looks discouraged. And he says, and this is the Andrew translation, you don't even know what's going on. You don't even know how we're feeling. Has any of you ever gotten that before in a conflict? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever said those words you don't even know how I'm feeling right now. You don't know what's going on. I, I've said those words to my wife in anger. I've said those things. And I love what Jesus does because Jesus does something that's so important. And, and men and women, if we are going to be peacemakers, we have to learn how to do this. This is going to, to better your relationship with your children. This is going to better your relationship with your spouse. This is going to better your relationship with your coworkers. You have to ask the next question. And Jesus asked the next question. And he says, what things? Tell me more. Because if we allow people to stonewall us, or if we allow us to never get to the heart of the thing, we're never going to know what's underneath the conflict. And we're going to see what's underneath the conflict. And it, it, it is going to be beautiful. It's going to be why you're here at church this morning. But Jesus asked the next question, tell me about this. Men, I want to challenge you. Fathers and husbands, ask your wife this question. I need to repent because I need to ask my wife this question more. Tell me what is going on in your life. Tell me how you're doing. We need to ask that to our children. We need to take some of the best emotional and mental time in our day and apportion it to asking that question. 
Our best emotional and mental time does not need to go to our jobs. But our best spiritual, mental, and emotional time needs to go towards asking that question. Jesus asked the next question. And then what I love, what I love is this. Luke, Luke has written his gospel. It says that he's written his gospel. And if you don't know anything about Luke, Luke is, is a doctor. That is his trade. He's a doctor. But in Acts 16, he meets Paul. And he joins and becomes a believer in the way. He believes the gospel. He believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who's come to save the entire world, all of the nations, and he believes. And so he's a doctor, and most likely he even leaves kind of in that time, you were a doctor and you were, you were employed by a really rich person, a patron. It wasn't like you had a little clinic on the side of the street. You had a really rich person, and they paid for you to be their family doctor. And so he was probably a family doctor, and it just brings so much more beauty, too, to Luke. This is, this is why Luke, he's coming back to this area, and he's chronicling all of these things so he can write them down in an orderly fashion. And here in, 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 in verses 19 through 24... Luke summarizes all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we're just looking at Luke. He summarizes everything that he said. A concise summary of the gospel in six verses. Again, Luke is an educated Greek, and he brings together the entirety of the gospel in six verses. It's about Jesus of Nazareth, who, who people believe were, was a prophet. His speech was powerful. The signs that he did was powerful. But the leaders of the Jews handed him over to be killed. They betrayed him. And he was crucified but besides all this, some of the stuff that he talked about, about rising from the dead, came to pass because we went to his tomb and it's empty and we can't figure it out. This is the gospel. This is the gospel at ground zero. The day that Christ rose from the dead as these two people, these two travelers are trying to figure it out. And, and who are these two travelers? Well, we're only given the name of one, Cleopas. Um, Cleopas' wife, we also know that is Mary. So it's a husband and wife traveling away from Jerusalem. So we don't know if they're debating Scripture and they're wondering how all these things are coming to pass and they're in, they're in argument about it because many conjecture that Mary was one of the women who was at the tomb that morning. But yet she somehow is now fleeing Jerusalem on the road. You don't, th this could be a marital squabble about the truth of Scripture. About what to believe. I, I, have you guys ever had a marital fight about the truth of Scripture or what to believe or how that it applies to your family? This 
could be what's going on. And then we hear about what is, what is all of this conflict about? It's about one thing. It's about hope. It is about hope. It's verse 21. But we were hoping that he was the one who's about to redeem Israel. Again, redemption, we, we think of like buying things back. That's not what a, a Jew in the first century would have thought about in redemption. It's not language of the marketplace. It's language of the exodus. That Jesus Christ was the Messiah who had led the people out of slavery and bondage to the nations so that Israel once again could be the beautiful, holy land of God. This is redemption to Israel. This is what it means. I, I don't think we can fully grasp this, but I think we can start to get close when we look at our nation's history and some of the tragic aspects of our nation's history. If we look at the Underground Railroad, this is what they're saying in some ways, that they were hoping that Christ would have come and free all of the slaves because they're in bondage to other masters. So the hope generated by these people, it's like they're, they're saying Christ was our underground railroad. He was our shot at freedom and it's past and we're going to be in slavery for the rest of our lives. It's very hard for us to, to capture this in our moment in history. But if we roll back the history, we can see that. They were hoping. And is this not how we enter into conflict? We hope that, that, that something good is going to happen and conflict happens and we're crushed. We hope that our, our relationships with our children are going to be great, but something happens. We hope that our relationship with our spouse is going to be incredible, but something happens and our hope is crushed and our hope is lost. And so conflict is very real and deep and personal. And we are crushed just like they are when we have conflict in our lives. Our conflict is about one thing oftentimes. It's about lost hope. It's about our hope for this situation, this vacation, this life, this relationship. It's, it's not playing out how I thought it was going to play out. I, um, as I pray for Jax this last Thursday, it was really cool. If you guys don't know what Pray for Jax is, uh, once a month our church just tries to, to pick a geographic region of our city and, and go there and just be a church family and pray for people. Um, and so we, we went to uh, Memorial Park in Riverside. It was a, a, great, a great time, and I got a chance to meet Aaron. And um, Aaron is the mother of a, a beautiful uh, boy, three years old, named Kingston. Man, he was a spitfire. And we got to talking, and I asked her what is, if anything, I could pray for her about. And she gave kind of one of those long pauses. Kind of that pause where it's like, I, I don't know if I really want to open up to a complete stranger. 
Um, but she started to share how her hope for her marriage was that they'd be a united family raising their children. And, and after Kingston was born, she suffered a little bit with postpartum. The dad wanted nothing to do with anything that was going on. And now that they were getting a divorce. Breaking my heart. And I, her hope is, is just saturating through the conversation. I don't want to be a single parent. I found this man that, I, that, that, I, that we loved one another and we wanted to start a family with one another. And now that's not possible. And so we prayed and talked and prayed some more and, and then I just got a chance to pray with her. Pray that her hope would be restored. Pray that she would see God somewhere in the midst of this. But this was the conflict that she was dealing with. Let's keep reading. Jesus is, is getting ready to address this conflict. He's getting ready to address this lost hope. Verse 25. He said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So Jesus listens. He asks the next question. He enters into what really is this conflict about, and then he addresses exactly what's going on. Jesus Christ addresses his identity. It wasn't just about the hope of Israel being lost. It was about who will be the Messiah that will come and deliver us. And Jesus Christ addresses that. In our conflict, any conflict that we have is ultimately about that one thing. What is the identity of Jesus Christ in your life? And will you have subsequent, subsequent faith in him? Notice what Christ does, though. This is, this is, Jesus listens, but Jesus calls them out. We do need to be empathetic listeners, but we also need to be bold with the truth of Scripture, particularly as a household of faith. My wife has the freedom and the authority in our marriage to call me account to Scripture. And I have the same with her. The church, our body of believers, we need to call each other out sometimes. And this is what Jesus says. Some translations are being nice when it says, how unwise are you? Really what's going on, Jesus says, you're foolish. Now to a Jew, this is, who are fools? Gentiles are fools because they believe in, in pagan idols. But anyone in their heart who says there is no God according to the Psalms is a fool. And so Jesus calls them out. You are foolish that you do not believe in God. He's making a statement about his very identity. And then he says slow. And you're slow. Now, 
like I read that and I was like, okay, like could that mean like maybe just like slow of understanding or like slow of hearing, like a little hearing aid check, slow to just figure things out. It's actually, it's just an insult. It's a straight up put down. I even, I even looked at, um, again, how is that word slow in Greek used in classical Greek literature? From Homer to Dionysus to Polybius to Plato, they all use it and they all are calling people slow. Like little kids get this, right? My little kids get it. Noah, my five-year-old, all the time he's like, ha I'm faster than you. You're slow, Corbin. I'm kind of like, Corbin and Noah, this isn't really fair, you know? Noah, you're two years older than him. Your legs are like twice as long. But that's what kids do, right? You're slow. I'm faster than you. And Jesus is just trying to let him know, hey, you're foolish and you're slow. Jesus is talking those words to us sometimes. Are we not slow to believe in our hearts that Jesus is God and ruling and reigning over every situation on this planet? And this is, this is part of Luke's discipleship coming out too, right? Again, Luke believed. Luke believed when the message was first presented to him, he didn't even see Jesus. He didn't even hear Jesus teach. And so we see an aspect of Luke's discipleship as the writer of this gospel come into play and looks like, y'all are slow, man. I believed it the first time I heard it. Wow. And then what did Jesus do? And this is, this, is, this is tough for our church to hear. This is tough for the American church to hear. This is really, really tough for even some of you guys to hear probably. Verse 27 Beginning with Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures, Jesus taught them. What is this saying? It is saying Jesus, for four hours, taught the Old Testament to them. Now, some of y'all will be like, all right, I got to go. I don't have four hours to be in the Old Testament. Jesus proved that he was Messiah through the Old Testament. How valuable is the Old Testament for our faith? How beautiful and rich is the Old Testament for our faith? We did a sermon series a couple of years ago um, on the Old Testament. We did 11 weeks. In a lot of ways, it, it, it was like a seminary class on the entirety of the Old Testament, an Old Testament survey. What was tough for me as a pastor is, is at the end of that sermon series, there was a family that had just joined our church. They, they had some connections before, excited to be in ministry with them. They, they had come out to some home groups, and um, the, the father, they just moved here, and, and the father just said, hey, yeah, I really like everything that's going on, but you know, you guys, like, you guys taught a lot out of the Old Testament, and I just feel like that's not really where our family's at right now. And, and it's like, it's tough as a pastor. I was like, well, it was a series. But also, wow, how beautiful it would be for 11 weeks to sit under. Frank and I and some of the other pastors, we're not God's gift to teaching, but we faithfully communicate the word of God to you so that you can understand what God is doing. How beautiful would it be for 11 weeks to have an understanding of what God is doing in the entirety of the Old Testament. 
And this dad was just like, yeah, this is not where our family's at. And, you know, things are really hard because we're moving and we're in flux, but I think we're going to go check out another church and that's fine. Like, you've got to do you. But part of me was like, the whole entire Old Testament is the people of God in flux, in transition. And you sat in teachings here for almost three months and nothing pegged you. We've got to be more serious about how we are studying scripture. We've got to be more serious because what is Jesus doing? How does Jesus reveal himself to us? This isn't a conference that Jesus is at. This isn't like a Christian, a Christian worship series that Jesus is at. Jesus is walking along for four hours with the disciples explaining the Old Testament. Wow. We'll see what this effect has in a minute. So we're going to keep reading. Begin in verse 28. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. Jesus gave that impression. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered together. And they said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Christ was made known to him when he sat down. Again, the Passover meal, what the people of God did before they left Egypt Before the exodus, Jesus does the same thing. Again, prophetically fulfilling what he says, that he will not eat or drink of this until the kingdom of God is established and fulfilled on earth. And they recognize him. That the kingdom is fulfilled, that the Messiah has come and that it truly is Jesus Christ, that he truly has been raised from the dead. And then we get this key word, He disappears, which that's a pretty cool God power. I guess Jesus has it. Um, Disappears. Um, And um, they turn to each other. They said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? They didn't talk to each other about the conflict that they had been having. They didn't talk to each other about maybe some of the missed expectations. They said our hearts were ablaze as Jesus Christ explained Scripture to them. In Greek, this word is kaimoning, burning. It's a passive meaning. They're not actively doing anything. 
We don't actively do anything to receive our salvation. Jesus Christ has done it all, and he has paid the full price on the cross. And so it is like Christ is setting them on fire to know the truth of Scripture. I, I, I studied this a lot in, in, in Greek. I was looking through concordances. I wanted to make a really good, accurate translation to what Luke is trying to say about them. It's three words, okay? Luke is trying to say, they were lit. I'm serious, that's good Greek. It's really good Greek. They were lit. They were set on fire. The gospel message, the love of Christ, the truth of all of Scripture had been fulfilled. There was no more conflict in their life. They had been set on fire for Jesus Christ. And so what do they do immediately? Again, they're lit. Do they stay the night? Do they sleep on it? No. Again, it's evening time. They just been on the road for seven miles. They go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the place that they were running from so they can tell others what had happened. Seven miles, four hours, in the middle of the night, braving all sorts of robbers, darkness, fear, because they had come in contact with Jesus Christ. And again, the contrast from verse 16 to verse 31 is amazing. Their eyes were prevented from seeing Jesus, but when they spent time with Jesus, their eyes were opened. And we need to bring this with our conflict to others. Oftentimes we are prevented from seeing Jesus when we initially have conflict with others. Because we're thinking about ourselves, our rights, how we were hurt, what's going on, our fears. But when we spend time with Jesus, we start to think about him. And we start to think about his glory And this is what we need to think about in, in when we have conflict with our identity in Christ. We need to go spend time with Jesus. Let's wrap up this story. Um, so verses 36 to 49, I'm going to summarize to you. Frank last week shared on Thomas the same scenario happens. They come back. They run back to Jerusalem, and they tell the 11 who are gathered together behind locked doors in fear, in uncertainty, and they say, we've seen Jesus Christ. And as soon as they say that, Jesus Christ appears again. It's a pretty cool God power. And Jesus Christ says, what? Peace to you. You didn't have peace before because you didn't know the identity of Christ. But guess what? Now that you know the identity of Christ and believe you have peace. And what is that peace for, church? Why are we given peace? Again, this is peacemaker theology 101. This is deep truths of, of Scripture that we're going to sink ourselves into right now. Why are we given peace in Christ? So our minds are opened up to understand 
the scriptures. Our minds are opened up to understand this book. And, and praise God, because there's a lot of religions out there. All of them have bigger books than we do. I'm just saying, Jesus was kind to us. God was very kind to us. You can read all four of the Gospels in less than an hour each. Jesus was very kind to us. Also, most of Scripture was, was, was written on a very elementary level in Greek. In fact, Greek philosophers made fun of the Bible because it was written at such a low level of Greek. One of the church fathers, Origen, he countered that by saying, it is written at such a low level of Greek because your philosophies might be deep, but only a few read them. The Bible, many read them and they find depth. Oh, wow. Come on, Origen. That'll preach. The Bible is meant for us to understand. We have peace with Christ that we can understand scriptures. The second reason why we have peace with Christ is that the Messiah is revealed to us as our hope, the forgiveness of our sins, so the, worship, the, wor- the, the, so that the nations can come and worship Jesus Christ. We get to have peace with God. And then the last, the very last thing is why do we have peace with God? So that we can witness it again and again and again in our lives. So peacemakers, our goal, and hopefully you've traveled with us and you've seen that we become the people of God who breathe grace into conflict because we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. This is the great hope that we have, the forgiveness of our sins. And so we can solve conflicts and forgive the sins of others because our sins have been forgiven. So how does this apply in conflict? Just a few things as you think about conflict in your lives. Oftentimes in conflict, we're prevented from recognizing him, and we walk away. We're discouraged. Again, all these are coming from the stories. But if we turn our eyes to Jesus Christ and the scriptures, we encounter the living words of God. And let me just make it clear, the same living words of God that created Everything we encountered and those same words can recreate hope and peace and love and life in our lives. We encounter the living words of God so that our hearts are inflamed, so that we are lit by God and the presence of Christ. And at that hour, what happens at that hour? These disciples who were fleeing because of conflict turned around. This husband and wife team that was possibly debating with one another and arguing with one another, the conflict dropped, and they went back right away to make things right because their eyes had been filled with the picture of Jesus Christ, not with the picture of themselves or who was right and wrong. And then last, peace to you because Christ has forgiven you. So a few takeaways for you guys. Um, Our role as peacemakers 
should be a witness to the nations. How we handle conflict should be a witness to the nations about Jesus Christ. Is that true for you in your life right now? Again, I want you guys to connect the dots. There's practical steps that all of you guys might need to take in your relationships right now. I'm not going to tell you what to do because you should turn to Scripture and have your hearts so lit by the words of God that He informs you what to do to give Him glory so that you see Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is a dominant New Testament ethic or practice. Is forgiveness a dominant practice in your life? Or do you maybe have grudges or wounds or bitterness stored up from past conflict? Jesus Christ has opened your mind to understand Scripture. What are you doing? Are you reading it? The average Christian in America spends less than one hour in the Bible a week. I think that's a generous statistic. Finally, for conflict, what, when you're in conflict, the question to ask yourself all the time is how can I know Christ better through this? That's a good question to ask. All right, we're going to wrap up. Before we do, I do want to share with you one last story. It's a story about someone who, um, whose heart and eyes and life were lit by the words of Scripture. Um, her name's Rachel um, was a Rachel Sloan. Last year, she was married to become Rachel Clausen. And um, for us, it was a beautiful, joyous time. The excitement um, about seeing a life um, just uh, pursue God. And um, last year, around this time, she was killed in a car accident um, immediately. And uh, for our church, this was kind of our first big funeral and, and our first kind of moment where you just had to grieve someone and it was tough. It was tough pastorally. It was tough personally. And one of the things that um, the family said um, that they wanted to do was they wanted to start a, a Rachel fund. Um, Rachel fund is spelled capital F-U-N and then D because Rachel was fun. And they wanted to start that so that people, their family members, but also people in this church could give to what Rachel was passionate about. And Rachel was passionate about seeing other people loved and scripture come to life. That girl had question after question after question. She was one who wanted to understand scriptures. And so um, she, uh, she passed away, but her memory is present and it is here. And so we're, we're just going to ask you guys as a church, um, for the next two weeks um, in the back, we're just going to have envelopes. And if you want to give to the Rachel Fund, you're welcome to. Um, all the money goes specifically towards um, just reaching the next generations on college campuses and in the youth. That's what she was passionate and excited about. That's what we've been using the money for since last week. So if that's you and you want to give, that's great. We just ask that, hey, you give just, um, you know, over and above what you normally give for your tithe. And, and that's, that's her heart. That's the family's heart. That's her husband's heart. And that's our heart as a church is we want to reach people so they can be lit for Jesus Christ. Um, next week, um, her husband 
Neil is, is going to share a few words, but we just wanted to let you guys know that. And uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, Lord. We thank you that you are the one who you, you open our eyes to understand Scripture. Lord, I thank you that that is the express purpose for our gathering here. Is we, we don't honor or praise men here. We preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that these people will be so filled with the knowledge of Christ that they walk out with their hearts inflamed with the love of God and with a heart to read and understand and know Scripture. Lord, we thank you for this time. Amen.